Pastor George here. I wanted to take a second and thank you for checking out our online messages. Our prayer is that this resource will challenge you, encourage you, and empower you as you uh, dig deeper in your relationship with Christ. But in no way will it replace God's plan for your active involvement in a local church. I do want to take a second and ask you to uh, prayerfully consider as you participate and listen to this resource, partnering with Revive as we uh, pursue our mission of seeing people live their fullest life in Christ. You can do this by going online to revivechurchga.com backslash give and making a one-time donation or setting up a recurring gift. It's through the generosity of others that we're able to provide um, a resource like this one. With that being said, uh, I do want to thank you again, and here is today's message. He's had, he had lots of success in two different churches where he took them from about 19 members to about 75 members. And the church that he's at now, he was really struggling with his impact. He felt like he had had successful ministry before. He knew what it meant to make a difference in people's lives. But where he was at, it just wasn't working. There's this frustration, almost like a holy frustration of, of God not using him for the impact that he had experienced before. And he just, it was a, a constant battle in his mind. And then one day he's in the Bible, he's reading his Bible. He comes across Psalm 86 and uh, the Holy Spirit just begins to put verse five on his heart over and over again. So he begins to pray that for himself, for his church, but more specifically for his city, his community. He would get on his bike and he would ride around the community or he'd go for walks, sometimes even get in his car. And he would just drive around his area praying this verse, Psalm 86, verse 5, over and over and over again. One day, about three weeks later, he uh, ended up getting a second job. The second job was working for Uber. He was a bivocational pastor, so he needed a second income, and he didn't know where he wanted to go, what kind of job he wanted to do, but the Lord opened up some doors that he could not deny. He could not shut. He knew that God was calling him for this to be his second job. So he, he applies, gets the job, and three weeks later, after starting praying this verse, he's now driving for Uber. Now, what he didn't realize was the amount of hurt, broken, sinful people that would be getting in the back of his car when he, from his community when he started driving for Uber. Conversation after conversation, he became divine appointments is what he called them. He couldn't believe that people would find out through questions and, and answers that he was a pastor. And it was like this moment where they're in the car with a pastor that they're never going to see again, gave them the opportunity to be brutally honest. <laughs> And people would just unload on him. And he, it blew his mind. He said that he did more ministry in the years driving for Uber than he had done previously in his ministry career, which is dynamic and crazy. And he, he tells stories about how he actually, there are people who would get in his car from his community and they would be hurting and they'd end up actually going to his church because of the conversations they had in his car. And he realized there was power when they found out he was a pastor. So he put like a little gift baggie together for all the people that rode with him that had like his name, his title, 
title and uh, church name, and the bag had like goodies and candy and treats and stuff in it, right? And so people would get in right away, find out he was a pastor, and it would open up these conversations. He led over 10, this was uh, two years ago when he first told the story, there was already 10 people that he had led to Christ in his car, He had had families come to his church. He had seen life change happen because he would listen to the promptings of the Holy Spirit. He would listen to the nudges, and he would obey. And stories would unfold. One specific story, there is this Russian lady. She had a very thick Russian accent, and she gets in his car, and she's going to the airport, which is like an hour away. So they had plenty of time to talk. And she finds out he's a pastor, and she just opens up about how she loves being a mom. She's talking about her kids. She's talking about the interactions with her kids, what her kids are doing in life, how she's proud of them. She spends half the trip talking about what it means to her to be a mom. And he's asking questions. They're going back and forth, and they get to this breaking point in the conversation. And she's like, I just love being a mom. And she stopped. And he was like, okay. He felt the Holy Spirit telling him, There's something more here. She's not done. So instead of asking another question or coming in with his own story, he just stayed silent. He'd look back in the rearview mirror, and she wouldn't make eye contact. She's looking out the window. But he felt the Holy Spirit saying, she's not done. Stay silent. And he didn't respond. He stayed silent. He said it felt like forever. It was really probably like 60 seconds, but he felt like forever. And then she finishes the sentence. I love being a mom but I hate being married. And like, I mean, imagine this joyful conversation about how much she loves being a mom, and then bam, she drops that truth bomb. <laughs> what, do you, what do you do? How do you react? Like, okay, instantly awkward, right? But he embraces the awkward, and he's okay with the awkwardness. He's okay with the weird dynamic that's happening, and he asks some more probing questions, right? He asks, you know, are you being abused? She says no. Verbally, no. Physically, no. He asks, is he suffering from addiction? No, he's not suffering from addiction. He asks all these questions, and she, the answer to all of them is no. So then he just asks her flat out, so why do you hate being married? She begins to tell him the story of, of her husband who is, grew up on the rural farms of uh, the back hills of Russia, right? He's very gruff and rough around the edges. He hasn't been socialized. He doesn't really know how to be kind to people. He's very, very rough around the edges. And she said, I just don't feel loved. I don't feel special. He doesn't take care of me. He doesn't nurture me. And, and he opens up about all this stuff, and, she, and he begins to ask her about herself. And he finds out that she's Catholic, but not practicing, and she doesn't have a relationship with Jesus. And through the conversation, he, he unpacks what it means to follow Jesus and the joy that comes from it. And in the car, in the car ride right there, she surrenders her life. He walks with her as she surrenders her life and follows Jesus. And then he asked her, do you think it could be possible that God has placed you in his life to show him the light of Jesus? She never responded. She stayed silent for the rest of the car ride. When they got out of the car ride, I want to read his words as he's retelling the story. I want to read verbatim what he says here. It says, at the airport, she told me she was on her way to Chicago to divorce her husband. However, on the ride, she had a change of heart. And now she knew God wanted her to stay with her husband and help him through his struggles and see the hope of Christ. As I said goodbye, she said, my heart is so full of joy. 
Mark was struggling with finding significance and impact in his life. But he listened to the promptings of the Holy Spirit and made real life change for those that got in his car. Through this moment, this woman who's from Russia has struggling in her marriage finds hope in Christ because he was willing to listen and act with the Holy Spirit. We're talking in this series about what it means to experience the gospel's renewing power, how it renews us and revives us. And one of the ways that happens is when we walk in holy obedience to the Father, our life begins to have purpose and we can make a holy difference in those around us. Have you ever been like Mark was in the beginning of the story? Have you ever been in that place where you felt like God is calling me to more? I'm just not sure what it is. He's calling me to make a difference, but I'm just not sure what it is. I don't know where to go. I don't know how to act. I don't know what to do. The truth is the gospel is so much more than just being forgiven for our sins. That is glory to God. That is a huge part of it. And it's so important that we embrace that and follow Jesus. But the gospel is more than just that. It gives purpose to our life. And so what I want to do is I want to unpack how that happens. And what I've seen happen, the reason that, that I've, what I've seen happen in followers of Jesus is they surrender their life to God. They surrender their life to Jesus and they know they're supposed to live in obedience and holiness to him. We know that, right? We have uh, scripture like John chapter 14 and it says that truly, Jesus says, truly I tell you, the one who believes in me will do more and also do more works than I do. It says, I love you. If you love me, you will keep my commands. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 says, don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit God's kingdom? And we all know the famous verses in James where it says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says that he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace and be warmed and filled without giving them the things they need for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. We know, the churches, we we tell you over and over again, you can't earn your salvation. There's nothing you can do. There's not enough prayers that you can pray, enough money that you can give, enough church services that you can go to to earn your salvation. But there's no denying that scripture is clear. Your character and your obedience matter. But what happens is we've, taught, we've taken this holy life, right? We talk about holiness, and we've turned it, instead of living holy in obedience to God, we've turned it into sin management. When we, we think about holiness, we think about the, the holiness and righteousness. We think about kind of, those are words that our, our grandparents used to throw out, right? We hear words like holiness, and like, okay, that means I got to wear a suit and tie to church. I can't wear a hat at the dinner table. You can't cut the grass on Sundays. You can't have tattoos or smoke cigarettes or drink beer. There's this long list of demands and rules that we have to follow. And we hear holiness, and we hear obedience. We hear righteousness. We think, okay, there's this list of rules. If I'm going to be holy, if I'm going to have the work that we hear about. If I'm going to have that action with my faith, I've got all these sins that I have to make sure that I avoid or that I don't commit. And we we turn a holy life into this life of sin management. Holiness is viewed as kind of like, I think about back in the heart of the pandemic, right? We're 
we hear holiness, we think set apart. So I get this, this image of if you're going out into public, you want to stay set apart from the vid, right? The COVID. And so you would wear a mask and you put on gloves or you use hand sanitizer. You stay six feet away from the people around you. Everything you can do to avoid the virus in the world. And holiness has been viewed like this sense of, okay, we have these list of rules that we follow so that we can, so that we can avoid the ugliness of the world, the virus that's in the world. But that's not what holiness is. Holiness is not this avoidance of the bad. It's walking in the good of Christ. I like how J.D. Walt puts it. He quotes it like this. What if holiness is not immunity from the world, but the contagion that we want the world to catch? What if holiness means being set apart like Kobe Bryant was set apart when he had the basketball in his hands, inspiring awe and amazement? Or like Mozart, arranging notes on a page. What if holiness means being set apart like Jesus, doing all the things that he did and still does, like rubbing shoulders with the lepers and pardoning prostitutes? What if holiness is the kind of greatness that inspires greatness, and not only inspires it, but empowers it? For so many people, we reduce the Christian life to sin management, where our goal is to make it from Sunday to Sunday without falling short. We grit our teeth. We will ourselves. I'm not going to sin. I'm not going to sin. I'm not going to say those words. I'm not going to do that thing. I'm not going to click on that link. I'm not going to go to that place. I'm not going to commit that addiction. I'm not going to give in. We try to do everything we can to stay strong. And then, oh, on Saturday night, we fall short. I guess I'm going to go to church today. I'm going to pray. I'm going to get the guilt out so that I can get rid of this this feeling of this shame. And then I won't sin next week. And the cycle repeats itself over and over and over again because we've reduced holy living to sin management. But that is not what holy living is. Holy living, especially, unless I'm Wesleyan through and through, right? Our holy living Holiness is not something, a behavior that we act, but it comes in and it penetrates our heart. It goes deep into our lives, changing the very nature of who we are. Holiness comes in and it doesn't make us be good people following the rules. It makes us into being just like Jesus. It transforms the very person we are. So how do we get there? How do we get to the place where we're living holy and making a difference? Because it's holy living that gives us access to the holy power so that we can make a holy difference in those around us. So how do we get there? I have three questions, very practically, three questions that you can ask yourself in your prayer life, in your daily life as you walk, that will allow us to walk in that holy living. I first heard these questions in a talk from John Tyson, where he explores what sin management is and how we break free from it. And so these questions were really profound to me and how I walk out my faith. And so I want to share them with you this morning, right? Three questions that help us move from sin management to holy obedience and being kingdom disciples. What's the father doing? Where is he doing it? And who is he giving you? What's the father doing? I like the way Henry Blackaby said breaks it down. He says, Jesus was the son of God, yet he never took the initiative to dream a dream or launch a new ministry. Jesus 
was the son of God, but he never went rogue. Everywhere he went, everything he did was because the father was doing it first. When he went in and he did ministry, it's because he saw the father working in that area and he followed him. He did the will of the one who sent him. A beautiful picture of this comes from John chapter 5. And if you ever need somebody to sing you about the uh, song about the pool of Beth, how do you say it? Beth, Beth, Bethesda, my father, he's got, a, he's got a real banger, okay? He's got a great song about the pool of Bethesda, and he will sing it for you, right? The story comes from John chapter 5. Jesus is walking up to a festival, and as he's uh, walking there, he, he enters in this room that's kind of like a portico, right? There's all these, it's a lot bigger, but it's all these columns, and it's holding up this roof. So it's kind of like a room, but it's an outdoor room, right? And so it's a, this big room, outdoors, there's this pool in the middle, and the belief was that when this pool, an angel would come down and stir this pool, and if you got into the pool after the angel stirred it, you would be healed, right? And so there's all these people. You've got blind people. You've got deaf people, lame people, paralytics. You've got all these people who are damaged and broken goods to their culture. They've got all these things going on in their lives that's calling that they need healing from, and they're just sitting in this room waiting for the pool to stir so they can get in it. Jesus walking up to this festival. He walks into this room. And he sees this guy in the corner, right? He sees this guy and he makes a beeline to him. All these people around, he walks straight up to him. This guy, he's beat up, he's broken. He's he's struggled with this disability for 38 years. 38 years he's been longing for healing. 38 years he's been doing everything he can to get healed. And now he's in this room and he wants to get to the pool. But every time the water is stirred, somebody cuts in front of him. He can't get anybody to help him get up and get in the pool. And he's just sitting there, sitting there time after time, watching the water stir, wanting to get into it and not being able to get there. And then Jesus walks in and he sees him. He approaches him and he asks him, Do you want to be well? Now, I would never say this to Jesus, but it's a dumb question. (laughs) Like, duh, his whole life, he wants to get, that's why he's there. Now, Jesus is much more wise than me, and he knows what he's doing when he asks this question, okay? But he's asking this question, he wants to see if he perceives what the, the offer that's there, if he sees the invitation that Jesus is giving him, and he doesn't. Jesus says, do you want to be healed? Do you want to be well? And he's like, here's a bunch of questions. Here's a bunch of excuses. I want to get in the water, but I can't. I don't have the ability. Somebody jumps in in front of me. There's nobody to help me. And you can see the wheels turning like, maybe I have an advocate. Maybe this man is asking me because he wants to help me. He's going to help me get in the water. He's going to help me get healed when the water begins to stir. These, these wheels are turning in the, in the distance. And this man's life, wondering, wondering if he's finally got somebody that's going to fight for him, if he's finally got somebody that's going to work on his behalf. And Jesus is like, bet, say less, I got you, right? And he's like, okay, he's going he's gonna to help me. He's like, no, no, stand up, pick up your mat, and walk. I'm not going to help you get in the pool to be healed. I'm going to heal you now. I'm going to make you whole. I'm going to fix your brokenness. And the man obeys. He stands up first time in 38 years. He picks up his mat and he walks away. He makes a big spectacle of himself. This man who's been there for 38 years, unable to walk. People know this community is a, it's a, it's a community where people know each other. And the Pharisees see him, and they see him with his mat, and immediately they're mad. Because here's the deal. The rules say you can't pick up your mat on the Sabbath. And this healing has been made on the Sabbath. 
So the Pharisees are like, ah, 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 no, sir, great, you're walking, but you need to put that mat down. They approach him and they ask him, who has done this? How have you been healed? He's like, Jesus did it. So then they go to Jesus and and they have this lighthearted debriefing. No, no, it says they persecuted him, right? Like they, they questioned Jesus. They were horrible. They were interrogated Jesus. Great work. And there's this moment they're asking like, Jesus, okay, cool. You healed him. Great. Good job. Yeah, more power to you. But you did it in the wrong 24 hours. You can't heal on the Sabbath. And so they're furious with Jesus. They're mad that Jesus has taken this action and healed on the Sabbath. And I want to read you what Jesus says. He says, Truly, I tell you, the son is not able to do anything on his own, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, the son likewise does these things. Jesus is in a room full of sick and hurting people. And there are other stories where Jesus sees crowds and has compassion and heals everybody. He had the ability to heal everybody in that room but he does it. He heals the one person. He goes to this man who's been, a paral- who's been a disabled and beside the water. He goes to him and he heals this one person. Why? Because he saw the father already working in the life of that person. I had a student went back in the the uh, Stone Ages when I was a youth pastor, right? a long time ago, right? And I had this student and like he was a monster. He would come in and he would bully kids. He was really mean. He was really angry. And you could tell there were some issues there because something would happen. He would just flip a switch and lose his cool. One time he even tore the door off the frame in our youth room, right? Like very angry, lots of problems. And he even ended up going to juvenile and then coming back to the youth group. And he would be there and he would sit kind of like middle of the room towards the middle. And he would fall asleep during every talk. He would come and he would (laughs) get angry sometimes pick fights. And we were like, why is he even here? But for some reason, I could not shake him. His name would come to my mind when I was praying. I would think about him all the time. I just knew that God was doing something in his life. And I couldn't explain it because there was no evidence of it, right? He was angry. He was mean. He was sleeping, not paying attention, but I knew God was wanting him. God was moving in his life somehow. So I would pray for him. I'd talk for him. We, uh, uh, Eventually, I invited him to kind of help me pass out papers, and I saw this, like, light go off in him, and then I'd have him help me pass out snacks, and I realized that, like, when you asked him to help serve, the anger melted away. And so I began asking him to serve weekly, to do different things, and began having conversations with him, and I really wanted him to go to youth camp. As a youth pastor, I knew that this was a powerful moment where kids give their lives to Christ and they get a call to ministry. God moved in an amazing way at youth camps. But he did not have the money to go. So we did all these different scholarships every year. We had lots of kids in the youth group, lots of kids going to camp, lots of kids wanting to go to camp. I made sure that he did the work and got the scholarship to go to camp. And we're at camp and it's like nothing's going on. We have the youth rallies at night and he's standing there like this. You're like, man, he's, is he, he doesn't sing. He doesn't pay attention. Is, he, is God really working on him? Am I crazy here? And I'm praying for him. I'm talking to him. He loves everything else about camp. He's, he's playing the games. He's, he's taking this huge half a tree log. He's put the team flag on it, and he's like championing the flag. He walks around camp the whole week carrying this giant flag for their, their team name and everything on it. 
is all week, we're on the, the last night of the week, third, well, second July, Thursday night. And it's Thursday night's kind of this big night where we have we pull out all the stops. People from the community come in. It's a, it's a big night at camp. And I'm like, this is the night. I've been praying for him. I know God is working. I can feel it. I've had conversations. I know tonight is the night. The rally comes and goes. Nothing happens. And I'm just got this like feeling of defeat. Like I know God is working. I feel it, but I don't see it. And then uh, it's getting close to the bedtime. And he comes to me, he's like, hey, I left our flag down at the, the uh, pavilion. Can we go down there and get it? I'm like, okay. So we walk down there and get it. And as we're walking back, I just ask him. I'm like, hey, I feel like God's moving in your life. Is, that, is, is he doing anything for you? Is anything happening? And in that moment, he just breaks down. Tears start flowing. He throws his arms around me. We have a conversation. He ends up surrendering his life to Christ. I get the joy of baptizing him when we get back um, back from camp and church and everything like that. No, no idea, no signs outwardly that God was doing anything in his life, but each and every moment mattered. Each and every conversation mattered because God saw him and was working on him. And I I felt in my spirit that the father was doing something and I just tried to be obedient and it had an impact on this kid's life. What how would your life be different if we operated in the same way? How different would your life look if instead of walking into your workplace feeling that dread of Monday morning or complaining or frustrating about the people that you work with, if you said the little prayer, Father, where have you been working to advance your kingdom and how can I participate in that? How would it change your work life? What about that annoying neighbor, the frustratingly long lines at Walmart in the self-checkout aisle, right? What, how would your life change if you asked God, what are you doing here? What about the family gathering with the uncle that talks about all the politics and you don't want to deal with? Or, or what about the frustrating person in your life? What if you said, God, what are you doing? And ignored all the outward signs and just listened to the Father and see where he is working and participate with him. Father, where are you working? What are you doing? And how do I participate? He will open doors that you did not know were there. He will show you opportunities and it will be life-changing for you and the person you are interacting with. We have to ask ourselves, if we want to move from sin management to a life in obedience, holy obedience to Christ, we have to ask ourselves, what is the Father doing? And then we have to ask, where is he doing it? If you go back to John 4, you see that Jesus has has gathered his disciples and they're walking and he decided that the text says that he had to go to Samaria. Now, a lot of times we can miss this as reading the scripture, but Samaritans and Jews did not get along. It was uh, an incredible, years years before they had this big ethnic battle, right? The Jews were not allowed to intermarry and some of them did intermarry. And so they were cast out and they ended up being called Samaritans and they were viewed as heretics and evil. And there was this big battle going on. And I mean, it was, they were burning each other's temples down, their communities down. It was horrible. This is this ethnic divide, tension between the Jews and the Samaritans. They did not get along. They did not interact with one another. But you know the story of Jesus and the woman at the well where he feels like the Spirit leads him into, he says he had to go to Samaria. He could have walked around it. He could have got taken a shorter path to where he was going. He didn't have to go there. But the Spirit said, the Father said, I'm working here 
This is where you need to go. And Jesus goes. And you know the story. He has this conversation with the Samaritan woman. She ends up surrendering her life to him. She goes back to her village. There's revival. The Samaritans are actually the first group of people to realize that Jesus is the Messiah. And it's all because of this conversation where he went and he followed the Father and went where the Father was working. The disciples come back from where they are. They're like, why is Jesus talking to the Samaritan woman? Like, like Jews didn't do that. Jesus must be burdened by something. Maybe he's hungry. They think, okay, he's got to be hungry, and he's asking her for food. And the disciples are like, but we're not going to question him, okay? I'm not going to go ask him what he's doing because they've learned their lesson. So when the Samaritan woman leaves and goes back to her village, they're like, Jesus, you got to be hungry. Why don't you eat something, right? They they just kind of passive-aggressively suggest, like, you shouldn't have been talking to her. you got to eat something. And this is Jesus' response. In verse 34, he says, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Jesus was led by the Spirit to where the Father was working and his nutrition, his fulfillment, his satisfaction. It came from doing what the Father was doing and where the Father was doing it. Sometimes God calls us into hard places, into times where we're uncomfortable, where in places where we feel like maybe we don't fit in. Maybe it's not everything I wanted it to be, but God calls us to that place because the Father is doing a work there and he has a plan for your impact where he's doing that work. I think about Freedom's Hill. If you don't know Freedom's Hill, it's a, it's a church. It was the first church, the first Wesleyan church in the South, right? It was in North Carolina, and then it ended up being lost in the woods, and they found it years later, and they actually moved it to Southern Wesleyan campus where I went to school. And it's this amazing story because you can go, when I, I was commissioned in there. They prayed over Lauren and I in there, and you can sit in there, and you can see where the bullets had been buried in the walls, you can see the bullet holes in the doors where these, this group of Wesleyans speaking out against slavery and wanting to, to be a part of the Underground Railroad. They formed this church in North Carolina, and it was the first Wesleyan church in the South for the purpose of ending slavery. And surprise, surprise, they were not welcomed there. God had called them to this hard place to make this difference. And many of the leaders were arrested. They were forced to leave. They were forced to go back to Ohio and other places where they were from. But there was one lay person who was from the area. And even though they were forcing everybody out, he chose to stay. His name was Micaiah McPherson. And he was just a lay person, right? He wasn't a pastor. He didn't have the education. He just felt God moving in this place to end slavery. And so he made his stand. And when other, people's, other people were forced to leave, they wanted to force him to leave, but he saw the father working in this place. And so he decided to stay there in North Carolina. And it ended up leading to his demise. It wasn't long before they uh, came into by horseback, came into his home, his home on his farm, dragged him out and hung him on a redwood tree off the, off the road by his farm. Some time passed by and they actually needed the rope to hang somebody else. So they went back to that tree and they cut him down and they took the rope. But what they didn't know is that he wasn't dead. He slowly regained his strength. This is a true story. Crawled back to his house where his wife nursed him back to health and he lived to where he was 85 
They actually took a piece of that tree and they made a gavel out of it for the judge in the city. And it's, you can go and see it at my campus or <laughs> on campus where they had this gavel made from this tree where they tried to hang him, but were unsuccessful. There are people all throughout history who have been called to hard places to do hard things where it cost them their life. Not everybody got to live. Many people died that same. There's even a quote that says they didn't have enough rope to to hang all the Wesleyans in North Carolina, right? This is a true story because people are called to do hard things and they're called, but they got, they weren't afraid of the hard things. They didn't, they weren't scared. They were satisfied. They were fully nourished doing the will of the Father where he was working because it was him doing the work. We can be, it's terrifying to step out in faith. It's terrifying to face these moments that we're uncomfortable with. But when we see that God is working in a place, we have to live in obedience, radical obedience, going where he is going and doing what he is doing because it gives us the nourishment we need. You will find full satisfaction. You will find that significance, that that impact that you've been longing for when you listen to the Holy Spirit and you go where the Father is calling you. What is the Father doing? Where is he doing it? And who has the Father given you? In John 9, there's a man born blind, and they ask, why, have you, why has this man been born blind? Is it the sin of him or the sin of his parents? And Jesus is like, it's neither of those things. It's so that God can be glorified. This is the George paraphrase, okay? And so that, that Jesus heals him. Great, good news. Bad news, once again, he does it on the Sabbath. Like, come on, Jesus. Wrong 24 hours, right? And so what happens is the Pharisees go to, they, they're like, oh, this is not good. He should not be healed on the Sabbath. So they go to the man's parents. They're like, hey, who healed him? And they're like, I don't know. He's a grown man. Go ask him. Like, really, that's basically what they say. And the point is that they are afraid of being kicked out of the synagogue because this is the center of belonging. It's the center of community. And if you get kicked out, it is uh, devastating, humiliating. It can cost you relationships. It can cost you your lifestyle, it is, it's horrendous to be kicked out of the synagogue, and they're afraid of that. So they like pass the buck. Don't ask us, ask him. So they go and they ask this man, who healed you? And like, he almost seems clueless. Like, he doesn't care. He, he's so overjoyed that Jesus has healed him. He doesn't care what the consequences are. He's like, oh, it was Jesus. Why? Do you want to follow him too? Yeah, you can imagine the Pharisees were not happy about this. So they kicked him out of the synagogue. They cast him out. And Jesus, hearing that he has been cast out, goes on a hunt. I've got to find this man. I mean, think about, think about the, what you know about Jesus in this time. Crowds gathered everywhere he went. Word had spread that he's healing people, that he can heal you of all your brokenness, that he can forgive you of your sins. Plus, he's like doing things to make the Pharisees mad, and people didn't like the Pharisees anyway. So, like, he, they, and he had all this profound teaching. Everywhere he went, people gathered. People were grasping at a chance just to touch the fringe of his coat. He has this power. He, these crowds would gather everywhere he went. And so Jesus is in the city, and he's trying to find this man. You can imagine how difficult it is. He, he only has three, three years to do ministry, and he spends a whole afternoon when everything he does counts. He spends a whole afternoon searching for this man, trying to find him, trying to find him. And then we see this in verse 35. It says, Jesus says, They had heard that he had thrown the man out, and when he found him, he asked, do you believe in the Son of Man? And the guy's like, I don't know. (laughs) Who's the Son of Man? And Jesus is like, you're looking at him. 
and he falls to his feet and he worships Jesus. And there's a lot there about Jesus being the son of man and worshiping him and all that stuff. But what, what is extremely profound that was pointed out to me is Jesus' word, it says, when he found him. Despite the crowds, despite the, the opportunities to reach all these people, despite his need for food or drink, despite being hunted by the Pharisees, Jesus found this man. He had been given a person by the Father, and Jesus was fixated on him until he had secured him as one of his followers. We see Jesus pray this in the high priestly prayer in John 17. He says, I have not lost any that you had given me. Jesus had been given this man, and he was willing to sacrifice the time and the energy and the opportunity in order to find him. That is the notice of heaven. God had been doing a work on this man, and it was given to Jesus, and Jesus sought after him. Is there somebody in your life that you have strangely noticed? Maybe you've ran into them over and over again, or maybe God brings them to your mind when you're thinking and praying about things going on. We live in a planet where there are 8 billion people on this planet, and you cannot reach everybody, but you can love somebody. The attention of heaven is on not just the masses, but on the individuals. And God has uniquely qualified you to reach those he has directed your way. This is what the Uber pastor, Mark, was doing, right? He had people get in his car. Not every conversation was a God conversation. He had been doing ministry for four years and led 10 people. You can imagine the, the amount of people that get in, got in his car, but 10 people had surrendered their life. You are not responsible for leading every single person to Jesus, but you are responsible for loving and seeing where the God is working and seeing those that he has given you and obeying him. How many, of those, how many of those life-altering conversations from Mark would have been missed if he wasn't praying and seeing what the God was doing and seeing if it was a person that had been given to him? Three questions that help us move from sin management into holy obedience and being kingdom builders. What is the Father doing? Where is the Father doing it? And who is the Father giving you? These require an incredible amount of faith and courage. But if you will ask those questions and answer them, you would be amazed at how you move from struggling not to commit these sins into not even thinking about those sins because you're pursuing the Father and what he has for you. Write these questions down. Pray them daily and see if God doesn't begin performing miracles in your life. Not, not every holy moment is significant and big and huge, but they all matter. Even the small conversations make a difference. It may, maybe, what's the, what could it hurt? The worst thing that could happen, you mess up and you don't, you, you say, you, you give encouragement to the wrong person. How horrible would it be to just encourage somebody by accident, Right? We have to be courageous and have faith and pray and see where the Holy Spirit is moving. And when we live in radical obedience, that is when holiness has transformed us to the core. We are called to live holy. That's how the gospel renews and revives us. But holiness is not sin management. It's participating in what the Father is doing by the power of the Spirit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you choose to partner with us 
We thank you that you encourage and empower us to do the work that you have set before us. I pray that we would humbly seek you, that we would live in holy obedience, and we would move and act where you call us to move and act. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you.